Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. What happened is in 1947, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine, which was under the British mandate, into two states, one for the Arabs, one for the Jews. Jewish emigration to Palestine had been on the increase in the 1930s as the situation for Jews increasingly deteriorated after Hitler took power in 1933. The Arabs saw more and more Jews coming, the population quadrupled and Suddenly, the Arabs were saying, you know, what, where are we going to live? And we don't want there to be a separate Jewish state. We want there to be one state, and we don't want people to keep coming in and keep coming in. And the Jews were saying, the Zionists were saying, you know, we have to have a safe haven. Every week on ReSound, we bring you some of the most innovative audio from around the world. Some of it might have appeared on the BBC, the CBC, the ABC, or the Internet. But since you can't be everywhere all the time, we try to be. All you have to do is tune in and lend us your ears. We do the rest. On today's show, a story from a part of the world where conflict is as much a part of the history as the sand it sits on. And in the middle of this conflict comes a story of empathy, friendship, and injustice told by a Palestinian boy who was forced to leave his home in 1948 and a European Jewish girl who moved in. Stay with us. Pursuing peace is the only avenue which is compatible with our culture and creed. Let there be no more wars or bloodshed between Arabs and Israelis. Sandy Tolan is a veteran journalist and radio producer whose work has been read in the New York Times and heard all over public radio. He founded Homeland's Productions to tell radio stories about the impact of social, environmental, and political change on communities all over the world. He also teaches graduate journalism at UC Berkeley, and we're happy to say he's always been a great friend to the Third Coast Festival. In 1998, on the 50th anniversary of the Arab-Israeli War, Sandy produced a documentary called The Lemon Tree, which first aired on NPR's Fresh Air. After finishing the radio piece, which was his most popular to date, he wrote a book, also called The Lemon Tree, expanding on the documentary. When he was in Chicago to talk about his new book, he stopped by the studio, and I asked him why he wanted to tell this story of the struggle between Palestine and Israel now, when it's been one of the most problematic parts of the world for so long, and unfortunately will probably continue to be. Well, I was always interested in, in finding a way to tell the story of what was happening from the standpoint of both Israel and the Palestinians. I mean, I grew up with the story that many people in, in the U.S. Uh, did, uh, whether they're Jewish or not, and I, I'm not, of the birth of Israel out of the Holocaust and how, in, in a way, one could say sort of the Leon Uris Exodus version of history in which the, the story is told as the heroic birth of Israel out of the Holocaust. And obviously there's a powerful truth to that. And it's the story that, that I also grew up with. I mean, growing up in Milwaukee, we had family, friends, that had just barely managed to escape Amsterdam. They lived in Anne Frank's neighborhood, and they got out just in time. I mean, the, the boat that they were going to take was torpedoed. They ended up taking a boat the next day, and they ended up in Milwaukee. That's the story I, I grew up with. And I was always interested, as I became a journalist, in finding out sort of a fuller history 
in the early 90s, I met uh, a Palestinian journalist on a Neiman Fellowship and later married her and began to see, as I started traveling to the region and doing my own work over there, that the, the whole history of the region was much more complex and much more interesting in the sense that there are really two narratives here. The Palestinian history of the Middle East has its own identity, and as I began traveling, covering issues in the Middle East, both by interviewing Israelis and Palestinians, I began to see that there's an incredible story to tell about both histories, and that eventually drew me into to this story of the lemon tree. Well, how did you find this story? Because this story pretty much has everything. You mean, you've got your conflict, you've got your twists and turns, you've got two people who are so eloquent and compassionate, and you identify with both of them. How did you happen upon them? How did you find them? How did you look? Well, I actually went looking for a story in a, in a large sense like this. Of course, I didn't know anything about the particulars. But our production company, Homelands, got a, a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The, the grant was to do stories uh, in a series called World Views, where people who are, in, in a sense, uh, at the center of the news, at the, uh, the, su- the subjects of the events, would tell their own stories. And you'd get the journalist more or less in the background. And I wanted to do it as 1998 approached and the 50th anniversary of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War approached. I wanted to find a way that would tell both stories, the the story uh, and history of of the Palestinians and of the Israelis in this conflict without talking to a bunch of analysts and without having people arguing back and forth in a theoretical way. I I actually went looking for a story that would have some kind of connective tissue to tell in human terms what both peoples went through and I was looking for it on a level of family, if possible. And so I went to the region in early 1998 and, and traveled around to Jerusalem, West Bank, Israel, and started talking to, uh, uh, interviewing a lot of people and asking people, what kind of story? Is there, is there an object, a, a single thing? And I started hearing the story of these two people, um, Bashir, a Palestinian uh, who had been driven out of his home with his family at he was age six, and Dahlia, who arrived with her parents as an only child uh, as an infant uh, four months later in November of nineteen forty eight and moved into the home that Bashir's family had lived in and I'd heard the story a couple of times and then had a chance encounter and met Bashir on the street in Ramallah and it was then that I asked him if he'd you know be willing to talk to me, and he said yes and and he gave me Dahlia's number, and I called her, and she said, yes, I'd be willing to talk to you. It had been written up a little bit in the Israeli press and in the Arab press uh, because Dahlia had written an open letter to Bashir and told the history of the families uh, in the Jerusalem Post, and Bashir had responded and written actually a, a memoir, a short, small memoir in Arabic. But that hadn't been written about a whole lot. And uh, so I just started going back and forth from Ramallah to Jerusalem and back, interviewing each of them separately, over the period of uh, uh, several weeks in early 1998. That's what grew into the radio documentary that aired originally on Fresh Air. We'll talk more after the documentary. Let's listen to The Lemon Tree, produced by Sandy Tolan. Bashir al-Hairi was six when his family fled the town of Ramleh in Old Palestine. It was July 1948, two months after Britain's withdrawal from Palestine, Israel's declaration of statehood, and the beginning of the Arab-Israeli War. By July 48, the balance of power had shifted toward the Jewish state. Israel launched an offensive to establish a corridor between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The Palestinian cities of Lod and Ramle were in the line of that assault, and Bashir, six years old, suddenly found himself a refugee in the West Bank town of Ramallah. Three months later, Dalia Ashkenazi arrived in Israel from Bulgaria. Dalia was an infant. She was told she was the only one on the boat who didn't get sick. Dalia's family escaped the Holocaust, like most Bulgarian Jews, yet nearly all of them, 50,000, moved as one to the new Jewish state. Dalia's family moved to Ramla, the town Bashir's family had fled. For 19 years, Bashir's family lived in exile in the West Bank. Dalia's went about making a new society. But after the Six-Day War, many Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza were allowed to enter Israel to visit their old homeland. Bashir remembered his father's stories of the land of Palestine, the house in Ramleh, 
and the family's cherished lemon tree. And so one day in July 1967, Bashir found himself in an Israeli bus station in West Jerusalem. That's where our story begins. Everything at the station is cold and silent, the walls and the faces. I approach a mirror on the wall and have a look at myself as if to make sure I was suited for the encounter, as if I were preparing to meet a lover. My cousin walked me for my thoughts. The bus is leaving. Whenever I heard a language, it was a language that was filled with threat for me, the language of the enemy. We knew uh, there was a propaganda uh, against the so-called Zionism, whatever that meant to the Arabs, trying to convince us that uh, Israel was not our place. The choice was either you go on your ships back to where you came from or we push you into the sea. For some choice. <laughs> We were three, my two older cousins and me. Each of us chose a window seat sitting in a row, one behind the other. We were filled with infinite dreams. The fear and the horror of it cannot be described. The Six-Day War was in 67, so I was 19, 20 years old. You know, you just felt completely entrapped. That's how we felt. And we were biting our nails, not knowing what, 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 what should we do now, you know, what, what? The journey began. It was a journey of expectations, a journey of love and pain. We devoured each scene that passed before our eyes. Who would have thought that we would have entered our homeland as strangers? I will never forget it. The fact that we couldn't be accepted here, it was very clearly stated. And because we, who have just come out from Europe, we had to take sick fantasies seriously. I had repeated dreams, night after night, as I was growing up, of uh, uh, Nazis in Israel, you know, trying to round me and my family and my friends up. Wherever we escaped, they were there. If we went this alleyway, they, they would come up this way, and if we came this alleyway, they would, th there was no way out. We got off the bus, and at that moment, memories came rushing back, as if 18 years had never passed. We were in our hometown, speaking our own language, walking freely down our old streets in Rambla. From time to time, I would ask my parents and uh, other people, um, who were the people who lived in these Arab houses before, and why did they uh, leave? And, uh, yeah, we were always told, yeah, people fled and left the boiling soup on the table, you know. So it sounded like some kind of a cowardly escape. We were walking toward my house. I was confronting the unknown. Lost in thought, how was I going to be received in that house? Who was going to be behind those closed doors? And I sort of try to imagine what, what it is like to be so afraid that one would have to leave everything 
Have you ever seen a lover drawn with a hidden magic toward his shrine, pulled by an invisible power that is beyond his comprehension? That was my state when a voice came from my depths. This is my home. And uh, I was uh, in a summer vacation from uh, the university, alone at home. My parents were working. I was wary. Should I knock forcefully and risk intimidating the people inside? Or knock softly and risk that the people would not hear me? I looked for the bell. I found the bell. I pressed the bell. And the doorbell of the big gate uh, rang. I was taking everything in. I looked at the walls of the house, the windows, the trees. I saw the flowering tree. It has beautiful scent. And the towering palm tree, taller than the house. And I saw the lemon tree. After a few seconds, I heard a voice in Hebrew saying, Kien Kien, which means yes. And when I opened, I saw these three men with suits and ties in the summer of July in Israel. <laughs> and I found myself face to face with a young woman in her 20s. I saw them and it was as if it was a revelation. I knew who they were. They were very wary and very shy and they didn't know how they would be received. But it was like in a split second, it was like uh, as if I was always waiting for them. I told her, I am the son of the man who owned the house, who lived here before 1948, and I lived here too. It is very strange, but I knew at that moment that it was like completing a puzzle. It was like the second part of an unfinished reality was there confronting me. And I said, is it possible for me to come in and see the house? And uh, I opened the door wide and I said, yes, to come in. I said, we haven't been properly introduced. I am Bashir, and these are my two cousins. She said, I am Dalia, and I study at Tel Aviv University. She entered, and I followed her, and we started going around the house. Every room I entered, I felt that I was entering a sacred place. I tried to touch everything, to take in everything. The walls, the doors, the ceiling, the windows, the floors, the colors, everything. She asked me, when you left, how old were you? I said, around six years old. She said, I came here when I was one year old. Where did you sleep? She asked me. Which was your room? And that conversation was taking place in the room where I slept when I was a child. And she said, this is where I sleep. This is my room. My recollection is that Bashir said that this was the room where he was born. I became very self-conscious then that I put a poster on the wall that was then uh, on the cover of Life magazine of a handsome officer in the Suez Canal with an Uzi, holding an Uzi in his hand with a big smile, like saying, we've made it. And uh, I was at the time very proud of uh, this image, which was a symbol of uh, liberation and warding of a threat and uh, being alive. And uh, there was this poster over my bed, you know. I suddenly realized that they must be looking at this poster with very different eyes and very different feelings than I do. We 
We said goodbye, we gave her our address, and we invited her to visit us in Ramallah. We thanked her for her reception and her kindness. She said, you can come anytime, the house will be open for you. We went back to Ramallah by bus, carrying new burdens on our chests. And then Dalia started visiting our house. She came unannounced. We were surprised when she entered the house. Of course, I invited her, but we had not set a date. When I came there, uh, it was an amazing experience because, you know, the whole family came and they looked at this uh, strange being. So it seemed to me you know, was living in their home, and uh, this was uh, probably the first Israeli they ever saw. And uh, they brought all these uh, wonderful cookies and tea and coffee, and <laughs> I felt very uh, uh, safe and protected among them. <laughs> We sat and talked about politics and religion and literature. We talked about how we were dispossessed and about the unfolding of the Palestinian tragedy. I said, okay, you know, I live in your home and this is also my home. It's the only home I know. So what shall we do? You know, there was a problem of language <laughs> and uh, Bashir spoke some English. So we started talking about my home, your home. And I, I, I started expressing my understanding of their sense of exile through my longing to, to Zion, to Zion, to Israel. They feel that a homeland means security. And outside this homeland, they are despised. But Palestine, geographically and demographically, is part of a bigger Arab world. It's in the middle of a sea of Arab culture. I used to tell her, you dream of living on an isolated island where you can practice a pure Jewish life is like the fantasy of Robinson Crusoe. It's a fantasy, it's not real. You see, sometimes we hear, uh, yes, the state of Israel exists uh, just because of the Holocaust. The only moral justification is the Holocaust. And uh, <laughs> there are some very deep components. It's not just memory. It's the spiritual nourishment that comes from these memories. Because otherwise, how can we understand the survival of the Jewish people against all odds, you know? They build their yearnings and dreams on myth. We base our dreams on the bones of our ancestors, on our history here. It's difficult for us to understand how they see history with one eye. They don't look at the facts that they don't want to see. There are four million Palestinians living in exile. Why should they remain abroad? The solution is one secular, democratic state where everyone lives equally. I felt that the two things were happening simultaneously. On the one hand, on the personal level, there was the establishment of a bond through a common fate. And this was an amazing situation to be in, you know. Everybody could feel the warmth and the, the reality of 
here people are meeting and meeting the other and it was real and it was happening and on the other hand intellectually we were conversing of things that we couldn't see possibly see how they, they seem totally mutually exclusive that my life here is at their expense and if uh, they want to realize their dream it's at my expense I felt that with every conversation, with every dialogue we had, there was a change taking place in the way she was thinking about us. And I felt that I was incredibly accepted. Just the very fact that I opened that door gave me a trust and a uh, gratitude that I cannot even express in words because I've never met such gratitude before. Just for the fact that I opened that door. At approximately five minutes to ten this morning, Jerusalem time, a bomb exploded outside one wing of the law. We saw blood, wounded people, suffering, pain. Dead people. These are some of the pictures that I can really remember. Matthew Holton of the CBC in London says the British feel that the stage is set for a terrible and bloody civil war in the Holy Land. He reports from London. The Jews are confident and determined. They defy the whole Arab world. After I met Bashir, I obviously wanted to know much more about uh, 48. And um, a student at the university was studying with me had participated in the 48 uh, war, and he told me about the expulsions from Ramla and Lod. He told me that, yes, they committed these expulsions by uh, frightening the population and driving them out. We took refuge in a nearby house. Part of it was transformed into a mobile clinic. My uncle was a doctor, and they used to bring in wounded people. There was the big uh, scandal of uh, Rabin's memoirs. The censorship in Israel had censored those parts in which he speaks of the expulsions from Ramle and Lod. But, of course, the book in its English version uh, came with a full account. <laughs> we are faced with occupation troops. They demanded by force of arms we leave that house. That's the house that we came to. It was in Ramla, and, uh, and we lived in this Arab house, which the state uh, took responsibility for, and it was called abandoned property. Uh, uh, I'm laughing because it was not abandoned, really. People were expelled, but uh, it was a comfortable uh, expression. We moved along like human waves, packed in tight clusters, filled with fear and exhaustion, walking towards the unknown. We had a dignified life. The moment we lost our country, we lost everything. In 1968 and 69, Bashir and his siblings continued to visit Dahlia in Ramle, sharing lemon juice under the lemon tree. But Bashir's father couldn't bring himself to visit. He said he was afraid that if he got to the door of his old home, he'd die. Dahlia continued her visits to Bashir's family in the West Bank. Bashir recalls one visit when Dahlia began probing him about his family's longing for Palestine. Dalia said, I have never seen people like you. You're strange. You don't just like your homeland, you adore your homeland. You adore the trees, you adore the fruits, you adore the earth, everything. I don't understand this attachment. I told her, I think I have an answer for that. I pointed to a lemon I had placed on the mantel. I asked her, do you remember our last visit to you four months ago? My brother asked for a lemon to bring to our father. This is the lemon fruit that you gave us. She said, what does this lemon mean to you? Why do you keep it for four months? 
I said, you are just telling me we are strange. I am telling you, for us, the lemon fruit is not just a fruit. This lemon is homeland. This lemon is Ramli. This lemon is Palestine. One day, um, Bashir's father came, and he was blind and old, and had to be, you know, really uh, supported when he walked. He um, touched the stones of the house, and after touching the stones, he said to my father, there was a lemon tree in the garden, which I planted, is it still alive? So my father, my father took him to, to the tree, and uh, Ahmed stood there. He, he was crying silently. And my father took a bunch of lemons and uh, gave it to him. And later I heard from Bashir's mother that um, when he couldn't sleep at night, he would hold these lemons and walk up and down, and that they kept them for years. You know, they shriveled more and more, and they kept them for years just there as a, something from the house and a gift and a memory. And then came the big shock. More outbursts of violence and bloodshed in the Middle East. Israeli 1969. You know, there was this explosion in a grand supermarket in Jerusalem. Jerusalem Explosives were put in a jam jar on the shelf. And the supermarket exploded and people were killed and wounded. And more on this from Michael Elkins in Jerusalem. Two bombs were placed in the supermarket. The first, which exploded, consisted of four or five kilos of dynamite. The second, which did not explode and was found in a large tin used for storing sweets, was smaller, about two kilos of dynamite. It is, of course, natural that suspicion falls upon the Arabs, and that the 150 persons, or perhaps more, who have been hauled in for investigation are Arabs. The police officers would not say when the bomb My father, Moshe, called me uh, one day and said, well, look what's in the papers. You know that Bashir is convicted uh, as having taken part in this. He was charged with being the liaison person between those who gave the explosives and those who put them in the jar. And um, as far as I know, it's an act attributed to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Well, Bashir is identified with this uh, movement. The person who appeared at my door, I've learned later, of course, uh, was an activist for the Popular Front. Anyways, after this, I, I, I felt so betrayed that all connections stopped with the family. He was in, in jail anyway, so, but, uh, yeah, everything stopped. No contact. There were false accusations, because if they had been able to prove them, I would have been sentenced to life in prison, not for 15 years. I used to walk by the Ramla prison every day on my way to work. And um, I was having thoughts whether I should go and check if Bashir was in that prison, because it's a very large prison for long-term prisoners. And I never did it. You think of it every day, you know. But yeah, I, w I felt very betrayed and uh, it was too much for me. I did not confess, and they could not extract a confession from me. However, I am Palestinian. I have always hated occupation. 
And I believe that I have the right to resist it by the means that are available to me. Yes, at one stage, the means were violent. But I understood them. I understood the actions of the Palestinian fighters who are ready to sacrifice themselves. I still understand them. I believe he was guilty. I still believe so. And I would be the happiest person on earth to be uh, disabused of this notion. Indeed, I was for many years waiting for a letter saying, uh, I never did this or a conversation. Uh, if I did this, I'm very, very sorry, but I never received such a letter. But I am his friend, yes? Am I his friend or not? If I'm his friend, he can tell me frankly, I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. And yet, he belongs to an organization which puts it on its agenda to destroy Israel, also through terror actions so-called armed struggle, bombing buses and so on, where also Palestinians are and also Palestinian children can be because terror is indiscriminate. And I can be on one of these buses too. We have suffered many massacres. Duwaymi, Kufar Qasim, Dar Yassim, Sabra Shatila. In the face of all these massacres, this possession, if anybody thought that the Palestinian would react like Jesus Christ would have, he is wrong. If I didn't have this deep conviction to the bone marrow in the necessity of hating the occupation, I don't deserve to be a Palestinian. This feeling, political feeling, started at the age of six when we were expelled. As a six-year-old, they were in Gaza where they had land, and he was playing with a hand grenade. And we were playing in the neighborhood with kids, and we thought it was a toy. It was a bomb. It exploded in my hand. And four of his fingers were blown out. Now, can you imagine the trauma of a six-year-old who is sure is playing with a toy, and it explodes in his hands? And he is sure that the Zionists have put it there for, for him and for little children to be blown up. I mean, what kind of an impression does that leave on somebody's mind who later goes and participates in doing pretty much the same to other people? Those were the gifts, the presence of the Zionist movement to the children of Palestine. If you just start playing with them, they explode. I never saw his left hand. His left hand is always in his pocket. Have you seen his left hand? You've met him. No, you shook his right hand. You've never seen his left hand. His left hand is hidden, and it's hidden so well, you never know you've never seen it. For me, what I lost in bones and flesh in Palestine made me more attached to Palestine. This is what I told them when they wanted to deport me. I said, you are only deporting parts of my body, but there are some parts of my body that you have no control over. It's already there, buried in Palestine, and I am coming back. When Bashir wrote to me about his hand, I didn't know of this story, actually. I was quite uh, shocked. And I was also shocked that he expressed the, the conviction that this was left there against Palestinian children as toys that to play with and to, to be exploded. I was, I, I was amazed at the intensity of his perception that Zionism was this incredibly evil uh, manifestation and that this was his experience. And I am a child of Zion. For me, Tzion means something very different than it means to him. For me, Tzion is the mountain of God. For me, it's an expression of my very ancient longing. For me, it's a word that symbolizes a harbor for my people and our collective expression here. And for him, it is 
it's a regime of terror. That's what it is for him. Something that it's a, an obligation to fight and to resist in every possible way. Because if Zionism for him is a reign of terror, then terrorism is an appropriate answer. And I say that I cannot afford being on that point where, where you fight one wrong with another wrong. It doesn't lead you anywhere. Bashir spent 15 years in prison for his alleged role in the bombing of the Jerusalem market. Dahlia lost touch with the family after cutting off all contact. But she kept thinking of Bashir and the house and their common fate. Still, during all these uh, <laughs> 16 years, I was thinking of the uh, tragedy of uh, the vicious circle. Pain, retaliation, pain, retaliation. It can go on and on. And uh, I also felt that this house belonged to a family, a whole family, you know, of... Uh, 13 people. I felt a very deep need to acknowledge that. So uh, my mother died in 77 and my father died in 85. I told Yecheskel, my husband, uh, yeah, what, what do you feel about searching out a family? So there was a, a meeting and I saw Bashir after all these years. So we... Uh, said, here is the house. How do you envision its uh, future? You know, we were open. We said we are ready to pay um, reparations, or how do you call it, compensation, for your loss of property, you know. And uh, we knew they couldn't live in the house by Israeli law. So um, if it's sold, you will get the, the, the money of it. And Bashir said, no, no, no selling, and no, this is my patrimony, and I don't... Uh... And we agreed, according to my suggestion, to turn the house into a daycare center for Arab children. I've done something very personal. I wanted to take responsibility for the suffering that my people has caused them, the Palestinian people. I believe that God is God of abundance and not God of scarcity. And therefore many things are possible. Hello, welcome to the open house. Uh, here's Bashir and Dalia's uh, house. This is where Bashir and Dalia live, at different times. Uh, we are standing near the lemon tree. Uh, unfortunately, the lemon tree is dead. The lemon tree is now, he's 65 years old, and he's died. The lemon tree died in the summer after uh, many years of uh, decline, and the gardener warned us that the tree is going to die, and said, well, this is the nature of things. Things just die on this planet, you know, and, uh, and still it was such a surprise, pain, such a pain, and uh, when, when, we saw it finally dead. We, uh, we have left the, the tree there, bare. And just yesterday when I was there, I picked a shriveled lemon from the ground and I'm, I'm keeping it. <laughs> uh, one of the last uh, falling, dried up lemons that are falling off the branches. And uh, the tree will stand there as long as it can. It's, it stands there, Tr trees die standing. That tree was living in our hearts. And the lemon fruit is not just a fruit. It's the buried childhood in each of us. It is our memories. It is our compassion. It is our country. And it is my dream that uh, with the Al Khairi family, we can, when the time is right, we can plant a, a new sapling lemon tree together. وتمنيت ألا تكون الدالية الوحيدة وتمنيت أن أعيش لأرى غابة من الداليات 
I had hoped that you would not be the only Dalia. I had hoped to live to see a forest of Dalia. And we had many expectations. I don't want to overburden you, Dalia. I know how sensitive you are. I don't wish you any pain. All what I wish, Dalia, is for you to struggle with me, to reunite me with my palm, my palm that has blended with every grain of Palestinian soil. I love my country, and you love your country, and I love your country too, and it is the same country. And I have nowhere else to go, and you have nowhere else to go. So we are here, and nobody will dream the other way. And our enemy is the only partner we have. A postscript. A few months ago, Bashir's mother died in the West Bank town of Ramallah. Dahlia and her husband went to pay their respects. She hadn't seen Bashir in 10 years, since he'd been deported by the Israeli government for being an organizer of the Palestinian uprising, or Intifada. Bashir says if there were more Dahlias willing to consider a Palestinian's right to return from exile, there could be a real and just peace. He still advocates one secular democratic state in all of old Palestine. Dahlia says she won't be ready for that for quite a while, at least not until Bashir renounces the use of violence as a means of political change. As for the house in Ramla, it remains a daycare center for the Arab children of Israel and a place of encounter for Arabs and Jews. The Lemon Tree, produced by Sandy Tolan. It was first heard on Fresh Air in 1998, though it feels as relevant as ever today. Sandy came to Chicago to promote his new book, The Lemon Tree, which grew out of the documentary you just heard. I was, of course, very happy to see him since I feel like I always owe him a huge debt of gratitude for being so very nice and so very patient when I tried to sell my first piece to NPR and he was appointed my editor. If you don't mind thanking me every time you go on the air, that would be great. Ah, And then mention the lemon tree, too. (laughs) Of course, that was decades ago, and we're not going to go there. So, Sandy, how and why did the documentary The Lemon Tree turn into the book The Lemon Tree? What was interesting about the documentary is because almost all of it is in first person, either Dali or Bashir talking, and essentially a conversation with each other, although they were never at that time in the same room, I think that the essence of what I talked to them about originally in 1998 is in there. What wasn't in there, what I really didn't um, pursue too much at the time when I first did the interviews in, in 98, and what's much more in the book is the history of the families going back a couple of generations and how that history is part of the larger history of the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Zionists who wanted to establish a state, uh, you know, as far back as the late 19th century. And so what I do is I go through in the book uh, the history of each family and how it relates to the larger history. That's what wasn't in the documentary, but that's really the, the research I've done quite extensively over the last three years, going to to archives in Bulgaria and Queens, New York and Jerusalem, Beirut, Ramallah, elsewhere, looking at family history and looking at how that fits into the history of Israel, the history of the Palestinians. And how is it that this amazing story of the Bulgarian Jews, for example, they were the only Jewish community in Europe that remained fully intact after the Holocaust. And that is is the result of the actions of some extraordinarily courageous people, Jews and non-Jews, in 1943. So I tell that whole story and how that how that relates to Dahlia, who wasn't even born at the time, is because her parents almost were forced onto train cars that were bound for Treblinka. But as a result of these actions by these courageous people, they didn't. And as a result, Dahlia was born. And a few months after she was born, then the family decided along with most of the Bulgarian Jews, to go to the new state of Israel. So so that's the kind of thing that, that I 
research extensively in the archives or oral history and and other original documents to, to try to create this tapestry and this narrative that would engage readers and help them follow uh, the the development of this history of the whole region through these families. Well, how did, if at all, did it change the way you look at the situation or did it change the way you think about things relating to the Middle East or did it change the way you think about things in general, the hmm. story? What it's taught me, um, among other things, I mean, it's taught me that one has to be willing to look at the facts of history in order to move forward. You know, in this culture, in our American culture, I remember talking to a Hopi guy years ago when I was doing a story in, in Arizona when I lived out there. And he said, you know, I don't understand you Americans. You know, you go from, you know, Scotts Bluff, Nebraska to Topeka or, you know, from, from New Jersey to Oregon. And you know, you just up and, and you say there's no big deal. You know, with us, we're connected to this place. And I think one, one of the things that I hear people, you know, tell me in, in response sometimes to the book, you know, why don't these people just move on? And I think one of the things that, that makes that very difficult is that what happened in 1948 and, and, and the fact that, that so many Palestinians uh, either fled or were expelled from their lands um, is not generally recognized or officially acknowledged on the part uh, on the part of many Israelis and that helps that wound continue to fester because it's never been acknowledged and what has happened in part as a result of that there's this essence of a wish of return for for so many Palestinians now the movement has been split because most Palestinians now accept a two-state solution but Within this 58 years of, of exile from 1948 to now, one of the things that's been so striking to me and it makes me really understand that one has to be honest about the history is, is that because that history in a large sense and in some ways in both sides has not been acknowledged, it, it continues to drive a lot of the politics. The, the Palestinian attachment to land in exile has been one of the most underrated and misunderstood parts of this entire conflict. So I, I guess, you know, how have I been changed? What, what I've been changed by, uh, I suppose, is a sense that reconciliation between these two peoples is absolutely necessary, no matter, you know, how many walls are built, no matter what happens to, in efforts to separate two peoples, eventually there's going to have to be reconciliation and that's going to have to come from both sides acknowledging each other's history. And that's what I think is a part of what's really been missing. And, and I have, have become much more aware of the particulars of this in, in, the, in the years I've been doing this book. So after all is said and done, do you consider their story I mean, you can look at it many ways, mm. but do you, do you consider it a story of hope or <laughs> an example of just how intractable the situation is, or do you look at it as something else entirely? I would say, you know, A and B. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be C. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, no, I, you know, what I, what I feel about this, for one thing, when, when, the, when the piece ran, when the, when the, Fresh Air documentary ran the Lemon Tree back in '98. One of the things that's uh, was so astonishing to me is that the feedback, and I still get feedback. I still get people telling me, "Oh, I pulled over to the side of the road and started crying." I mean, it's the story of these two people and the fact that they they appear to be just talking to each other from the depths of their history. This went beyond what we are so accustomed and, and in a sense desensitized um, at having seen and read and heard for so many years another exploding bus, another kid with a stone in his hand shot down. I mean, and, and, and we, we read the paper and we go, my God, wasn't I reading this 20 years ago? And and what, what the response to the book um, and, and, and certainly to the radio documentary earlier, it, I mean, that the response to the radio documentary was more than all of the work I'd ever done for print, radio, any other professional work I'd ever done, all of it put together. 
And I think it's because I would not say it's a hopeful story, but I will say uh, that it's a story that contains hope. And it contains hope because even though it appears to be so intractable, and even though it appears to be, you know, like every time, with only one exception of the maybe 10 times I've been to the Middle East, only once has it appeared to be more hopeful than the time before, and every other time it's worse. And I certainly would make no exception today. Uh, but even even within that, one of the things that's so amazing about these two people is that though their disagreements politically are profound and about as wide apart as they could be, the warmth uh, between these two individuals and the connection that they have. I mean, what Dahlia says is like, I don't even call it a friendship because you choose your friends. We didn't choose each other, but we, you know, we can't wish the other away. And we have this history with each other, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we, those two have chosen to acknowledge it and to have chosen to try to talk to each other across this incredible chasm. And I saw that myself with my own eyes at near the end of my research for the book when, when um, I kind of snuck Dahlia into the West Bank. I mean, the soldiers didn't check her ID. She's an Israeli citizen. She wasn't supposed to be going there. She had requested a meeting with Bashir, which she was very happy to arrange. And so I went with her and a a Palestinian Arabic translator, colleague of mine. And I saw Bashir, you know, we walked up the stairs of his office and there he was on the landing with this huge smile on his face and this, the small talk that we would, what we would consider small talk, you know, how is, how is your boy, how is Ahmad, who is, you know, the name of Bashir's son, which is also the name of his father in the Arabic tradition. And he's going to Harvard. Oh, you must be so proud. And then Bashir saying, you know, and how's Raphael? And Raphael was born after an incredibly difficult pregnancy. Dolly was in bed for seven months. It was during the Intifada when Bashir was deported. And Bashir's sister came to the hospital from Ramallah, from exile, to visit Dahlia. You know, these incredible family connections. So that when Bashir says to Dahlia, how's Raphael? It has this history behind it and this profound concern for the other which is so rare especially now so there's something about these two i mean dahlia is an absolute committed zionist um she believes in a two-state solution and bashir is an absolute committed palestinian nationalist who believes in a one-state solution uh, which dahlia could not abide and yet they care about each other so much that it's just remarkable to witness. And it's been, I mean, in terms of hope, in terms of, you know, as a journalist, looking at it as a journalist, I mean, to be witness to that has been one of the most remarkable things that I've, that I've seen as a, as a journalist. Sandy Tolan is a veteran NPR producer, and out of his NPR work, he founded Homelands Productions. He also teaches at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. You can find out more about Sandy or play the lemon tree again for yourself or friends, family, by going to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.